We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Okay, so good evening, everyone, and good evening, Adam. Good evening, Richard. I should say hello, everyone. I have no idea what time people are listening to this at. So, but anyway, um, the subject of today's podcast is the so-called 20th hijacker, Zacharias Massawi. So we're going to run through the details of his arrest, what subsequently happened with the... Um, the refusal to examine his laptop, and then what we learned at his trial. So, Adam, wherever you want to start there, I'm guessing of some biographical detail, but you jump in there. Sure. Uh, well, the book was pretty interesting to read. Um, hang on, hang on, sorry, I didn't mention the book. So, if you, that's ah! fine, but just tell people, tell people what book. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, the... yeah, so, so I mentioned, well, we're going to talk about him in general, but... Um, We've just both been reading this book. I heard you were going on Jihad by Mitchell Gray. Okay, so um, that's going to be like we're going to draw particularly on that. Adam, I think I've read it quite quickly, and I think Adam has uh, compiled twenty pages of notes. So that's yes. Go, go ahead, Adam. Go ahead. Well, the, the the book was rather interesting in itself. Um, it was referred to me by a friend, a fellow researcher, uh, Nelson Martins, and. Um, I've always wanted to read the book because I, I myself was very interested in the uh, Minnesota angle regarding um, the FBI uh, and their connection to Oklahoma City. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between the two agencies and a lot of um, uh, critique in how they handled the Masawi case. Um, okay, just, just my opinion, that, like, can you explain the relevance of Minnesota um, and geographically what that is to do with Oklahoma City. Bear in mind, people not in the U.S., so Minnesota, Oklahoma, where are they, why are they related, and right, what has well, Minnesota got to do with Missouri? Right, well, the Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota um, agency, uh, led by, Bob, by Bob, Bob Bowman, who is the supervisor, heading supervisor there, and, of course, um, everybody knows about Colleen Rowley, uh, the whistleblower, and um, she was the chief legal uh, counsel uh, in Minnesota, plus a 20-year agent as well. Oklahoma City is a, uh, the, the focal point of the book, actually, um, only because uh, this is where Zacharias Musawi uh, flew from Pakistan to Oklahoma City, too. Um, Zacharias Musawi, a little bit of uh, background to him. Zacharias Musawi is a Moroccan uh, he lived in France for many years. Um, he also has a brother. Uh, his brother actually wrote a book, and that's how 
I got acquainted with uh, Zachary Bissaui. It was an interesting book. And the book itself, a short rundown, was based upon the, bi the biography of uh, both the Musawi brothers and how they grew up in France and in Morocco and they faced a lot of persecution, racism, um, religious uh, uh, prejudice as well. Musawi actually uh, graduated college with uh, high honors. He actually was uh, an engineering student. Um, and then uh, somewhere along the line, this is not known, it's actually speculated by the FBI, that Musawi um, met with um, Salafist um, preachers and members of a mosque in uh, France. And it was them that persuaded Musawi to go to Pakistan and train uh, with the, uh, the Afghan Services Bureau there. About, about what age would he have been then, Adam? How, what age would he have been? Probably, yeah. Um, I, I approximately 19, 20 years old. Okay, so, so very, like, very, similar to the, the Hamburg... That's right. Then the sort yeah. of young men being radicalized. Right, exactly right. Um, and because he experienced uh, such harsh prejudices in his life, that he felt that he needed to belong. Now, this was covered by his brother too in the book as well. That uh, he the big reason why Musawi actually joined uh, these radical uh, groups like Al Qaeda was because he felt like he didn't belong to the outside world and that they saw him as nothing more than a lesser or a terrorist because of his ethnicity. And he was very dark skinned too. So that, you know, a lot of, of the um, European uh, races actually made fun of him. And he had a very rough life. I mean, growing up from, in Morocco too, uh, but when they moved to uh, France is where he uh, was repeatedly, almost uh, daily, abuses of racism and, and prejudice there. Um, so he he goes to Pakistan and he stays there for a year or I think 10 months. Um, in the book, it's stated that he's there from February of 2000. And then I think he, or he, uh, he leaves in February of 2001. He then enters the United States in 2001. Um, he enters in February 2001, uh, Norman, Oklahoma. Now, the FBI also states that it's highly speculative uh, in their reports, written in their 302s, um, the FBI 302s, which is an FBI report, draft report. They don't know who in Pakistan he met that said that he needed to go to Oklahoma City. But a little bit about, about why Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma City itself it has a large Muslim population, and it has for the last... 70 years because Oklahoma City, Oklahoma itself, the state has, is, is annually considered one of the best universities, uh, the University of Oklahoma, in regards to studying uh, geology and uh, oil, oil geology itself, it's fossil fuel industry. And so this attracted a lot of, of people from the Arabic background. Um, to go there. Plus, it's also very warm in Oklahoma City. It's uh, very, it's a very humid um, uh, uh, state itself, Oklahoma. So there's a huge population of Arabs there. Uh, this is going back all the way uh, to the 1950s with the um, construction of the North American Islamic Trust, or in short, NATE. I'll use that for short, N-A-I-T-E. Um, NATE, um, claims uh, 
that they have 90% of ownership of all the mosques in Oklahoma. And um, they're known internationally in the United States. Uh, they have a huge um, organization led by many um, uh, dignitaries in the Gulf. Um, and so they have a lot of mosques and they have a lot of um, Muslim centers in Oklahoma. And this catered to a lot of uh, notable uh, Muslims in Oklahoma. And one of them was a, a Sengali preacher named uh, Najai, uh, um, oh, I forgot his name, Elhaj uh, um, Nadai, N-D-I-A-Y-E, Elhaj Amadou Nadai. He's from Senegal, West, West Africa. And he's considered the most um, influential Islamic preacher in Oklahoma. And a lot of notable Salafist preachers in Oklahoma referred to him as their spiritual mentor. And a lot of these people are going to have a big influence on Zacharias Musawi later on. Um, Musawi enters Oklahoma City and he goes into a hotel and stays there um, for three weeks. I think the hotel was residence in, um, in Norman. And he stood there for a week and um, he goes into a... Uh, uh, the Norman Mosque itself. Now, this mosque um, is owned by uh, Nadai. Nadai is actually the imam there, um, El Haj Nadai. And right away, Musawi, who doesn't give his real name, he actually goes by um, a nickname. And uh, that nickname, what, what was that nickname? He was, uh, I can't think of his nickname. I think it started with an M or something like that. Um, but that wasn't his actual nickname. Uh, he just used it for some reason. But later on in the book, they found out that all the people that knew him in the mosque at that nickname, they lied about him. They actually knew who he was. And that too is speculation as to why the FBI couldn't understand as to how they knew him right away. Uh, whether he told them who he was and where he was coming from. Um, but that was one thing Musawi didn't relate later on to the FBI. He wasn't very truthful about that um, in, in his interview with um, the FBI itself. So he stays there for a little while, and then he gets a residence, and he, he meets somebody named Hussein al-Atas. Now, Hussein al-Atas is a young student at the University of Oklahoma City. Um, he actually um, knows Musawi by the nickname that he's given, I, I do want to get that nickname. I forgot. That, that's going to hurt um, because I I think it was important. Then just, we'll, call, we'll call it and you get the nickname. And say, okay, Adam, you've looked up the nickname and the nickname is? Yeah, Musawi's nickname is Shaquille. And, it's, and this is really important because the notable members of the mosque, the, Ima, the Norman mosque that Musawi visits, only know him by Shaquille. Now, um, there's actually two individuals uh, who also play a big part in the book in, in um, with Musawi. That's um, Suhaib Webb, who's uh, uh, an imam for another mosque, and he's a member of NATE, the North American Islamic uh, Group, and also to um, Menepa. His name is Menepa. Um, now, Menepa is a black Muslim. He's a black Muslim convert. 
Um, and Manepa has a, has a, a long history of criminal activities. Um, he was, he's a gun runner. He's also a gun owner. He shouldn't be in, in um, possession of weapons. He has a long felonious history. I, uh, I believe it was bank robbery um, and also domestic assault. Um, and Manepa and, and uh, Webb actually are prominent members of the Norman Mosque. Now, when Musawi visits here, everybody knows him as only Shaquille. These members only know him as Shaquille. So one day, uh, the author of the book, um, Mitchell Gray, uh, actually wants to learn Arabic. And so he knows a person by the name, his, he only knows him by his name is Ahmed. And so he has a relationship with him. His wife turns him on to Ahmed um, because um, he wanted to learn Arabic. And so they made a deal. And, they, and Ahmed told him, you know, I'll teach you Arabic. But one day, because Mitchell Gray is also a lawyer, he's a, a trial lawyer, um, he asked um, that he wouldn't take money. Uh, the, uh, uh, Ahmed wouldn't. He thought, it, that, you know, he wanted to propagate Islam by teaching him Arabic. Um, but Ahmed made a deal with him. And Ahmed said, um, if, the, if the time ever comes, I need you for legal advice, you'll help me. And uh, Mitchell Gray agreed. And so he wouldn't know that down the stretch that it would be Ahmed who gets the better of this deal. Um, so a couple of, of days later, after the September 11th attacks, it was on September 11th, Mitchell Gray was at home and, you know, he was watching the attacks on TV and uh, he gets a phone call. And the phone call is from Ahmed and Ahmed tells him to come, if he could come to his house, he has a problem which he needs legal advice. When he goes there, Mr. Gray's uh, meets Ahmed, his wife, and another individual. This individual is Menepta. Um, and Menepta is um, a very nefarious individual. He's very tall. He was a former running back in college. Um, and he was, uh, like I said, he had a criminal history as well. Um, and he actually did most of the talking while he was there. Um, so what happened was, was that he starts yelling at Mitchell Gray about how the FBI has arrested a brother from the mosque um, and that, um, that he needed his help and they don't know where he's at. Um, and that uh, while he's there, Minept is actually um, just yelling at Gray about how the United States is uh, keep calling Muslims as uh, terrorists. And there was one um, instance where um, he, there was an FBI agent outside some 7-Eleven store by the, by the phone booth. And Menepta actually noticed he was an FBI agent. And that um, he started yelling at the agent about why he's so prejudiced against Muslims. And Mr. Gray found that odd. Um, how Menepta knew that he was an FBI agent, thinking that Menepta himself um, was either someone who was an informant for the FBI, but that's not really known and it's not um, um, in depth in the book or not, as to how um, Menepta knew this person. By the way, his full name is Mujahid Abdul Qadir Menepta, and I'm just going to use his, his yes. last name as short, so that's why as Menepta. So while he's at Ahmed's home, um, he finds out that the person that they're talking about is, his name is Hussein al-Atas. And 
Mr. Great does not know who he is, so he takes down notes about where he is. So Mr. Great actually calls in the next couple of days to FBI offices in Oklahoma City who give him the runaround. And so they, in, in essence, after a week, he finds out that he has been arrested by Immigration Natural Services and not by the FBI. Um, he also finds out that he was arrested um, with another individual named Zacharias Musawi. Now, this is uh, not known to Minepta and um, not known to Gray because Minepta or um, Ahmed didn't tell Gray about Zacharias Musawi at the time. Not, not yet, anyway. So they uh, find out that he's being held on $5,000 bond, uh, Hussein Al-Latis at uh, an INS uh, center. And that um, Mitchell Gray actually talks to Ahmed days later, he talks to Minepta days later, about that he's being held on immigration services. So they, they're desperate. And he's not alone. He's not alone being arrested. Uh, there was another individual named Ali that was arrested, Mukaram Ali. Mukaram Ali is a younger individual. Um, uh, of course, Mitchell Gray doesn't know the link between Ali and Alatis until much later about why that's important, and I'll get into that in a bit. But uh, it seems that Minepta and um, uh, uh, Suhaib Webb uh, want to bail out only Alatis, but not Ali. They want to dismiss him. They don't think he's very important. Um, so they go and they bail. Um, actually, Suhaib Webb goes and tries to get bail, but he fails in that regard. So Minepta actually goes and bails him out with $5,000. Now, the money itself comes from the mosque in Norman. Now, according to Mitchell Gray in the book, this is important because when he goes to the mosque, he notices that there's a room on the side. And on the side of the room, there are two, two slots. One slot is for donations for Muslims in America, and the other slot is for donations to Muslims abroad. Now, in the book, he insinuates uh, a bit of speculation here, and he's careful to suggest so, thinking that the funds are going to madrasas in Pakistan uh, to support Muslims there, but he's not sure of that. And um, later on, that this mosque, later on in the book, it, it was under investigation because the North uh, American Islamic uh, group was under investigation due to the Holy Land Foundation, which was under investigation by the FBI, and that, that they were found to be guilty of supporting um, Islamic radicals abroad, um, Al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Sahab in, in the Philippines as well. Um, uh, I mean, um, uh, the um, uh, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. I'm sorry, I said Al-Sahab. That's in Africa. Um, now, so the, the mosque itself was found out to be uh, absolved of any terrorist links, as well as Minepta and Webb. And Mr. Gray states in a book, at no point did the FBI find that Minepta, Webb, or, or even Nadai, the imam Nadai, um, had any links, direct links, terrorism links, um, to Islamic radicals. However, it is assumed that in the book that these people knew a lot of nefarious individuals uh, abroad, especially um, one notable individual who is in Chechnya. And this is a person that we covered 
in the Chechnyan uh, war, the Chechen Ibn Khattab. Uh, and Ibn, just a short one, Ibn Khattab is a Chechen Islamic uh, leader um, in Chechnya, and he is actually linked with uh, Chechen rebels, Muslim rebels, and he has a close association to Osama bin Laden. So because of that connection or that, as they say, the Kevin Bacon uh, connection, where, you know, that person, that person, that person knows somebody, and that was the only the, the link to the Norman uh, mosque itself, because the Imam Nadai knew Ibn Khattab, and Ibn Khattab knew Bin Laden. But there is no actual direct connection with terrorist groups itself. And Mitchell Gray is very careful about it in the book, which I actually liked about that, because you have authors that just assume and just speculate, and they consider that evidence. But Gray's being careful here. So what happens? So Al Atis is freed on bail. He actually states to the FBI that um, he's not going to go back. To, he wants to go back to Norman. And Minepta and Webb, they actually lied to the FBI because when they go to INS, they're interviewed by the FBI. And he says the reason why they want him back was um, because he worked at the, the mosque itself and he worked with children. There's a special wing of children that he teaches uh, the Islamic Sharia law to. But they found out that this wasn't true. He had no intentions of going back. And the reason why was simple. A week prior to him being arrested, FBI agent Harry Samet um, gets a, uh, a, um, a, a memo about uh, uh, Zacharias Musawi, who just arrived inside the United States. And Musawi um, actually goes to Airman Flight School. Now, Airman Flight School is located in Norman. It is a, uh, a famous flight school that's been around for decades. Um, it caters to a lot of foreign students that come abroad that want to learn how to fly. And so as, as Musai was inside the United States, he, uh, from his hotel, he goes to Airman. In fact, the first day, by the way, as he's inside the United States, the first, per the first phone call he makes is to Airman uh, Flight uh, Training School which was kind of odd, uh, considering that he just got to the United States, and that's the first um, uh, phone number he has in his, his notebook. So he calls him four times. He speaks to the trainer there, and he goes there. And while he's there, he talks to uh, the flight trainer about flying 747s, but not landing them. And this is really peculiar. Um, he asks many odd questions. He's acting very suspicious. And so that trainer actually send, actually calls the FBI. And so he tells them um, about uh, this instance about Musawi um, asking these strange questions about why uh, he just wants to fly, not land. And so the FBI uh, says, well, all right, we'll go and interview him. And then Harry Samet and another agent go into the the residence that he's staying with, with Hussein Al-Atas. Now, Al-Atas claims that he doesn't know Musawi by name, just knows him as Shaquille. He then invites Musawi to stay with him in his house. And later on, I'll tell you why this is a little bit peculiar, but at the time, nobody knows why. And so they go and interview Musawi, and Musawi is separated from Al-Atas. So one agent's talking to Al-Atas, the other one, uh, Samet, is talking to Musawi. 
And so he's talking to Masawi, and Masawi can't give him a reason as to why he's inside the United States in the first place about how he's getting money because if later on it's found out that Ramsey bin Shabib, um, a uh, an Al Qaeda link, an Al Qaeda financier who's supposed to be involved in 9/11 attacks as a pilot, but he can't get inside the country. Is actually in Germany and he's sending money to the hijackers and operatives here in the United States. So he wires Musawi fourteen thousand dollars from Germany to um, a um, oh I forgot the name of the uh, uh, place that Musawi received the money, but he receives the money itself. And so he can't tell the FBI how he's getting his funding because he doesn't have a job. So does that does that give a financial link? I mean, just just an observation. Um, it doesn't sound like he's very well prepped in terms of what to say no. and what not to say and how to maintain right. cover, even compared to the other members of the handbook cell we looked at. And, you know, they did kind of things that drew attention to themselves too, okay? Like they left a laptop with a flight simulator right. behind. Mohammed Attar is meant to have gone in and talked about crop dusting in a, a rental office somewhere, right? right? They regularly got speeding tickets. Um, I say regularly, I think there's two or three of the hijackers got speeding tickets. Um, right. But... Um, just on the thing that they're receiving money from Ramsey bin Ashabib, does that provide a financial link then? That if you try, if you could find Zacharias Masawi's account, you can trace it back to Ramsey bin Ashabib, look at his outgoings, and see then that the, the um, various members of the um, the Hamburg cell and particularly the three pilots are, are they also? Can you trace go from Zacharias Masawi to Shabib to the other three and uncover the network that way? Right. But in the beginning, the FBI didn't know how he was getting this money. That's, that's the reason. I'm going to explain as to why okay. that's important later. Because okay. when they, when they um, actually arrest Musawi later, they arrest Al-Atas, they arrest Musawi as well. They want, I might as well just bring it up anyway now. Um, Musawi um, had actually two knives in his car. He actually rents a car as well, by the way. Um, so he has a rental car. And he actually gets money to fly in this, uh, to fly at Airman to train at Airman uh, Flight Industry. Um, he the, the money itself is located in in the information that was retrieved from the laptop. Uh, now let me let me explain as to why that's important because that's an important point that you raise. Um, when Samit uh, actually uh, detains Al Atas. At, uh, actually, immigration arrests Al-Atas. The FBI arrests Musawi itself. But Samit actually wants to open up a criminal investigation with, with Musawi. Now, he has to give a reason why. Now, this is very big because Samit actually is going by his own inclination. He thinks Musawi is a terror operative. Now, he's inside the United States. He wants to do something that involves with a plane. Um, and he comes up with a, a scenario thinking that this is a terror operative who's using a plane as a weapon. Now, he doesn't have direct evidence. The direct evidence would be whatever's in this house, whatever's in that house that Al-Atas uh, is residing in. Now, he needs a warrant. He can't get a warrant because Musawi is a foreign national. So he has to get what they call a FISA warrant. And the FISA warrant is the Foreign Intelligence Service Amendment. Now, that is for people who are acting as a foreign agent, not for a domestic agent. Since Musawi is visiting the United States and he has a, 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 tour, a visitor's uh, um, 
a, vis a visa, a tourist visa, a foreign visa, he can't get a regular uh, warrant through the U.S. courts. Uh, we're talking about Harry Samet, the FBI agent. He has to get what they call a visa warrant. Now, a visa warrant, in regards to what Samet did, Samet made a little mistake. And he opened up the, uh, the, uh, the Masawi case as a criminal case, not an immigration case. If he opened the case as an immigration case, he probably could have showed. Now, but Mitchell Gray, the author, says that's not true because he had a ton of circumstantial, circumstantial evidence. That shows Musawi himself, his actions, actually could have led to a FISA warrant by any court in the United States, much less a court in Oklahoma City. But because he, uh, he um, opened up a draft regarding a, a FISA warrant, he then sends it to Mike Maltby. Mike Maltby is the supervisor uh, to Henry Samet. And so he sends the, um, the, the draft to Mike Maltby and says, I need a FISA warrant to, to search Musawi's laptop and the residence of Hossein Alatas in which Musawi was held in. And so the FISA warrant itself was shot down because Mike Maltby actually says that, no, you don't have enough circumstantial evidence to show that this is true. And so, all, right away, Harry Samet is complaining to supervisors abroad. Um, he can't believe it. And he's like desperate. He says, I know this guy is here to, to do something harmful. Now, this is on August 21st, 2001. Mitchell Gray suggests in the book that the FBI had already previous information to Masawi's arrest that led to them knowing that there were so many warnings that had been blinking red from Phoenix, from Minnesota, from New York, and from Oklahoma City to show that there were people here flying in training centers. Now, one of them was called the Phoenix Memo, and that was, that was drafted by Ken Williams, who's an FBI agent out of the Phoenix office. And he sent that memo to Director Robert Mueller. Colleen Rowley, who is a long-term FBI agent and also uh, assistant legal counsel uh, lawyer for the FBI in uh, Minnesota, actually uh, states that she read the FISA draft by um, Harry Samet, and she complained to Robert Mueller saying that Samet's information was well enough to show that they could have had a FISA warrant, which could have um, uh, 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 gone through Musawi's laptop, excuse me, and uh, Alatas uh, home. Fast forward to 9-11, the day of 9-11. Can I hold you, before you fast forward, Adam? Sure. There's sure. a factor of um, information from French intelligence being presented to Mike Malkby, too, oh, right that. now. I don't know what he'd done, um, Sakharas Fazari, to, to raise a red flag for French intelligence. But, um, well, yeah, two or three things, actually. Um, the British knew about him. The French knew about him and he'd been at the Malaysia summit. So the CIA knew about him, but they claimed under a different name, right? So um, when the French intelligence said, like, is presented to Mike Balpe and said, like, he's known to French intelligence, he, he said, well, ha we, we don't know it's the same Zacharias Bissaui, right? Like there could be another right. Zacharias Bissaui in France. Now, um, I'll put a question in and you answer it when you like, sure. okay? So you might want to fast forward to 9-11 first and, and leave it, but... This is kind of like um, a key issue because we see like four names associated with um, 
the, the decision not to uh, open the laptop, right, to not get permission for that. Uh, one um, of them, other than Morgan Schools, is um, Tom Wilshire, who we've discussed, uh, who was seconded to the FBI from the CIA. He's in the Bin Laden unit at the CIA and is really like, maybe maybe you could say the key figure in uh, the court, like not passing on the information about the, the two West Coast hijackers uh, to the FBI. So it's just interesting that he reappears there to do with suppression of another potential hijacker and information comes light about that. And the other is a figure called Dave Frasca, who was supervisor of the FBI. And he was involved in um, also with the uh, Ken Williams memo, memo and uh, the investigation of Robert Wright, uh, the FBI agent, into um, funding for Islamist terror. Um, and also, uh, as Sander Hicks, our friend Sander Hicks, uh, documents with um, the uh, the undercover agent uh, Randy Glass, which is a bit of a different story. But you can you can point to like four things about Arab terrorism um, uh, inside the United States that Dave Frasca is there present and effectively keeping a lid on, right? And this is why uh, Mike Rupert, the LAPD narcotics investigator, who wrote, um, I don't know, maybe. In my mind, it's like the first really big comprehensive book on 9-11. You know, it's a, it, yeah. I, I forget the publication date off the top of my head, right? But from the, uh, well, the Cross in the Rubicon, okay? And he brings up um, the case of Colleen Rowley and Zacharias Pissari's laptop and points to Dave Frasca as a man who is working for the agency or something, the CIA, to uh, keep information suppressed. Um, Mike taking like the conspiracy perspective that this was deliberate, okay? And, and Mike's point is that having, be, having worked... Um, for the LAPD and seen the FBI in action through the 70s and 80s, um, he said the idea that they wouldn't open, they would need a warrant to open a laptop is a joke, right? They're just like the FBI are total cowboys; they do whatever they want to do. Um, so we get these two different visions because we've also we've spoken to um, someone from the FBI and and the image given is just oh no, no they had to be very careful because it's all going to open court one day and if they misstep in any way. So you, you have them, you have two different images the FBI presented from them being like very careful and under like severely legal restraint, um, really having their hands tied behind their back and they had to double check everything, cross every T, dot every I. And then you have the other vision of like the FBI are cowboys, uh, they're alone to themselves and there's no way they would have like not got gotten a warrant or been concerned about violating the rights of some Moroccan French guy who's talking about like flying planes into buildings, right? So that's, that's sort of the, the big question I have all dumped on you at once there. Now, you go ahead and fast forward to 11 uh, or whatever you're going to do, but just that and, and pick up on that whenever you, whenever you wish to. No, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, those are very good points you raised. And I'm going to try to answer most of them. Um, but pre 9-11, yes. When Harry Samet sent his memo regarding the Pfizer warrant, um, he also contacted French intelligence. And French intelligence sent him information regarding Musawi while he was living in France that they found out that he was commiserating with notable Salafist members at numerous mosques while in France. So they sent them a bunch of information showing that there's a link. Now, this is important because this is what the FISA warrant uh, needs to approve for a FISA warrant itself. They have to show that there's a foreign agent known a direct link to terrorism, any terrorist operation, individual, or organization. Now, just alone with the French intelligence, that was alone, according to Colleen Raleigh, according to um, uh, Mr. Gray, the author of the book, in which he states that that was enough. 
just that alone shows that, yes, you have a foreign agency, France, showing that Musawi did commiserate with notable terrorist organizations and individuals. And not only that, you also have the interview of Musawi himself, where he actually states that, he, uh, when the, I'm sorry, with Al Atas, it's actually Al Atas interview that implicates Musawi. And I don't know whether that was deliberate or not, but when the interviewing agent uh, interviews uh, Al Atas, Al Atas says that Musawi has a problem with the United States and Israel, that he would harm Americans if they were to harm Muslims. Um, another statement made by Al Atas was that Musawi himself um, visited Pakistan, and Pakistan at the time was a known terrorist uh, country hotspot. Um, that those instances alone, right there, um, would have given any supervisor, FBI supervisor of any state, uh, enough reason to approve for a FISA warrant. Um, in regards to Dave Frasca, who was the um, FBI's, uh, I think, the lead supervisor of the um, the uh, Radical Fundamentalist Unit, or the RDF, yeah, RDU, RFU, I think. Um, when Colleen Raleigh actually uh, complained to uh, Bob Bauman, who's the supervisor of the Minneapolis field office, it was Dave Frasca who tells Kali Raleigh not to proceed with the investigation into Musawi because he thought that they might screw up something that was the other investigations linked to Musawi elsewhere in the country, which really, that was quite a stretch, if you ask me. Um, and I, I don't know whether um, that is true or not, but boy, you know, it makes you wonder, like, why was Dave Frasca so adamant about not having Musawi's laptop, which, by the way, Musawi is actually almost impl implicating himself, as well as his friend Al Hussein Al Atas, about why Musawi's there in the first place. Um, you know, wanting to just fly planes and not land them, about um, why he's in the country in the first place. He actually lied to the FBI agent. So, um, in regards to um, uh, I, I think with the Phoenix memo itself, the Arizona memo, it, it shows you that uh, in previous, they had actually an informant uh, that was responding to Ken Williams. And I forgot the guy's name, but he was actually a Muslim convert himself. And he actually knew about Hani Hanjur, who went to the University of Arizona in 1992, who was actually tr uh, 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 learned how to fly in the uh, flight training schools in Arizona. And he told Ken Williams that there's a huge um, population of Arabs and Muslims uh, during the mid-90s, early 90s, that want to learn how to fly. And so Ken Williams wrote the Phoenix Memo in 2000 and drafted it and sent it to Robert Mueller, the FBI director. Along with that, you also have uh, Robert Wright, who is an FBI agent and who's a whistleblower, comes out later, and he's a, a lesser whistleblower. Nobody really knows about him. And he states that he was suppressed by superiors uh, regarding um, the influx of Arab uh, citizens, uh, Muslim citizens from Afghanistan and Pakistan that want to learn how to fly planes as well. So you have all these agents and all these memos that are coming out months prior to 9-11 attacks showing you, yes, there is, you know, um, there's warnings here. Um, and they think that 
there's a large terrorist operation plot that will happen inside the United States using planes. Now, if you want to go even further back than that to show that there was this inclination of using planes as weapons, go back to 1995 and the interview with Bajinka plot operator follower Abdul Hakim Murad, who when, when inter interrogated by Philippine interrogators, one including Rodolfo Mendoza, who finds out, not through, uh, not through um, uh, torture, although they did torture Murad, but he actually was very nice to Murad, and Murad responded to him. Murad actually tells him that there are people inside the United States learning how to fly planes and that they're going to crash them into buildings. That information, that's 1995 now, that information was sent, all the information that, that Rodolfo Mendoza gathered, he sent to the FBI. His response was silence. The FBI did not respond to him, even though they got the information. So that's six years prior to 9-11, let alone um, the uh, Colleen Riley memo, the, the Harry Salmon memo regarding the FISA warrant, um, and Bob Bowman and Dave Frasca and um, Mike Maltby, all shooting them down. And it came out later that through Rowley's personal letter, she wrote a personal letter to Robert Mueller, the FBI director, stating that what she thought was the problem. The problem was, was that there was a huge disconnect between FBI superiors headquarters and the agents on the field. The agents on the field in New York, in Phoenix, in Minnesota, in Oklahoma, all knew way back in 2000 that there was a problem of uh, fundamentalists of Arab citizens, uh, Arab foreign citizens coming into the United States, and all of them, most of them, were learning how to fly in flight training schools in those cities. And it was a huge disparity um, uh, percentage of American students and Arab students. It was a huge between the years '99 to 2001. Um, and it's not like because because it came out later that Mueller. Uh, before the 9-11 Commission stated, quote, that he did not have any prior warnings about Arabs learning how to flight schools. Does that sound familiar? Because that's what Colleen Rowell, I mean, Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State to the Bush administration, said before the 9-11 Commission, in which she said, quote, we had no idea that they would use planes as weapons, end quote. Now, not only did they commit perjury, Mueller and Rice, they had this information going all the way back to 1995, that they, these operators were learning how to use planes as weapons. Now, going back... Can I no, ask no, a clarification, sure. Adam? When you sure. say there's a disproportionate number of Arabs learning to fly planes, okay, I mean, presumably, the number of Arabs actively involved in learning to apply for terrorist reasons is tiny, right? We're talking about right. dozens. Okay, so is that a kind of cultural thing that Arabs like to, it's prestigious in Arab culture or something to be a pilot or, and therefore the hijackers sort of get lost in that? What, what's with the disproportionately high number? Well, uh, well I, I should have been a little bit more clear. I'm glad you brought this up. During the period of 1999 to 2001, um, the percentage of Arabs 
uh, in flight training schools. I think Scott, this is coming from the, the um, Office of Inspector General Review of the FBI's handling of the September 11th attacks. In that memo, it stated that between 1999 and 2001, according to the FBI, by the way, agents of the FBI, that there was a huge influx uh, between those years, as opposed to other years prior, a huge, like a huge spike. Uh, it was like 200% spike of, of Arabs learning how to fly in flight training schools. Now, this is not to say that all of them were terrorists and they were all learning how to fly train, flight training. No, it just says, it shows that there was a, a good number of operatives, Al-Qaeda operatives or operatives from some, some, some other radical organization that were inside the United States and that they were learning how to fly. Okay. My problem there is that doesn't, to say it's like a, a, a spike in terms of percentage doesn't tell me much. Cause if it's like, if there's 200 Arabs in total learning to fly in, in U S flight schools, and then there's like a 50% spike, well, that's only free on that. And yeah, terrorism could account for that. So I can imagine, right. you know, if we, cause we only, of course, like all the, the focus is put on the 20 hijackers, Masawi included, right? But of course, you know, you've talked about um, the hijacking, like the, the hijacking of Flight 23, which didn't happen, right? And the idea of 9-11 being a much bigger plot. So yeah, you, you can imagine maybe there are like in the low hundreds of hijackers, but I just don't have a clue whether there's like at any given time, hundreds of Arabs learn to fly or thousands of Arabs learn to fly inside the United States. So um, would, would a, a figure of like tens or hundreds cause a spike? Right. Well, that's information from the FBI. It, they don't. The one thing about the Inspector General report of the FBI's handling and investigation of the September 11th attacks is that the FBI actually mismanaged a lot of information regarding um, the terrorist cells inside the United States, and the agents actually, like Harry Samet and like Colin Rowley, state that that's the reason why the superiors in Minnesota, Oklahoma City, didn't take this seriously. And that, that that was the big complaint against Mueller, is that these agents from Phoenix and Minnesota and Oklahoma and New York were all stating that there was a lot of operatives inside the United States at that time, and that they tried to get the attention of their superiors and say, listen, um, from the information that we gathered, there's going to be a huge operation. They just don't know what so, I mean, are you painting a picture where there are dozens and dozens into the into the hundreds of potential pilots training? I think there were hundreds, and the reason why was because during the I wanted to say this for later, but I'll bring it up now because it's relevant. During Zacharias Musawi trial of two thousand six, it's Musawi's his own testimony states that there was a second wave of attacks right inside the United States. Now, it's never clear. Um, which one Musawi is meant to be a part of is I don't forget it was he meant to be doing something on 9-11 itself or was he one of the guys for the second wave according to him he was selected as the initial plot but because according to Musawi he says that somehow he must have either fell out of favor with bin Laden or the Hamburg cell that they, 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 they demoted him to the second wave of attacks. Okay, and he was talking about going, flying into the White House, okay, which if right. it's any of them, it's gotta be flight 93 if it's in the initial wave. Okay, now according to that, according to the testimony of the flight attendant, Sandra Bradshaw, who is a flight attendant of flight 93, that memo actually could be uh, retrieved by archive.org. She states on the phone that 
she heard one of the hijackers state that they were going to crash into the U.S. Capitol. Whether they were going to or not, I don't know, but that's coming from... Did Ramzi Ben Shabib say that as well, under interrogation? Again, but that take that with a great assault. Yeah, because he's tortured. He was the, actually tortured, yeah. right. He's actually tortured. Now, whether... Because it's not really definitively known. Now, mm. the, there were three targets that were supposedly for 93. It was the White House, the Capitol, and the, the monument, actually. I don't know if many people know about that. The Washington Monument was actually a target. The obelisk. Right, the obelisk. Now, what a strange course, target. Right, I don't know why. I mean, very but, hard to hit, I imagine, as well. <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you. But I, I also heard that there was rumors on, on forums that um, World Trade Center 7 was a target. But... It wouldn't have even reached. Yeah, okay. It's it's tangential. Like, that's a big topic, right? And that's right. appeared in yeah. like four. Anyway, and Ryan Dawson, I think, had that in his documentary. I, I imagine he might have retracted it now from like recent changes of perspective. But right. um, that well, let's not go there because that's we could discuss that at the time. Right. But, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's right. a big topic. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, but but according to Musawi himself, now I, I I think Musawi. By the way, Musawi actually went to trial in two thousand and six. Um, and he acted as his own lawyer. Uh, according to the judge, this was not advised, but actually the judge was surprised at the intelligence of Musawi. And he says that he actually knew uh, more about legal U.S. law than most lawyers. And because the FBI actually under Mueller states that Musawi was just a dumb um, well, terrorist. you sort of get that impression, right? If he comes and, and says things like, oh, I want to learn to fly a plane, but I don't care about right. landing, right? He does sound like a pretty dumb right. guy. And then he, right. he's doing a grand performance in court. That's like. Right. And it, it doesn't, but it poses a problem. Like, is this guy either unprepared or is he playing the dummy or is he really dumb and trying to look smarter than what he is? But if you go by um, what he did in his own trial, you would say, hey, that's pretty smart of him because actually during the trial, um, he actually saw the writing on the wall. His lawyers tried to get him to go through the trial and try to plead not guilty. But Musawi changed his plea to guilty, and because of that, he actually admitted his part to the 9-11 attacks because there was so much circumstantial evidence and evidence uh, regarding him. Now, to go a little bit before that to build up on it, after 9-11 attacks, of course, um, they, they uh, get the warrant to search the premises of Hussein Alatis and to search Musawi's laptop. Um, and according to what they find in Hussein Alatis' uh, apartment, they find shin guards, fighting gloves, um, manuals for crop dusters, manuals for 747 planes, um, all this incriminating evidence. And on the laptop of Musawi, a lot of it's redacted from public view. But what they found, what's public, according to Mitchell Grady, author of the book, states that in the computer, they found crop, must, crop dusting materials um, and chemicals, and as well as uh, manuals on how to fly 747s. But the majority of the information in the laptop is not, uh, is not made for public view. So there was a lot more information that we still don't know that's in the laptop, even today, to this very day. It's still... Um, okay, because Robert Mueller said it wouldn't have led to stopping 9-11, right? That's what he says. Now, yeah. according to Sabbath and Rowley and Ken Williams and all those agents from Phoenix and Minnesota and Oklahoma City, they say that with the information that they got from Musawi after 
that information would have stopped part of the 9-11 attacks at least, at, yeah. at the very least. Yeah, so, I, I mean, what yeah. I read on um, uh, History Commons and on, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, his name just left my disconnected, that's Kevin Fenton's article on this. Um, he says connections to 11 of the hijackers could have been directly made. And then Ramsey bin Al-Shabib's in there and that leads you other places too, right? right? So um, just to bring in George Tennant as an angle here, because George Tennant um, made a trip to see President Bush when he was on holiday in Texas, right? Which he, Tennant then forgot that he made this trip, okay? And it was August the 20, I'm going to say 21st. I didn't actually, I didn't think to say this before the interviews. I didn't note down the date, right? And so, yeah, you, you tell me if I'm saying anything wrongly, but as I recall, that's the trip that he forgot about. Right um, when he was in front of the 9/11 Commission, um, and that just doesn't seem in any way credible. I mean, I, I simply I don't believe he forgot about it at all. Right, so it just you you can't obviously say what he spoke about, but you can put those two dots right alongside each other. That it's right at the time of Zacharias Masawi's laptop uh, being discovered and him being arrested, and then Tennant is uh, reported to, when he, when he was informed of the attacks on 9-11, to have said, I wonder if it's got something to do with that guy in Minnesota. Bingo. Uh, they, uh, that leads right into Tom Wilshire, right? Um, because that's what you brought up before, a point about Tom Wilshire. Yes, Alex Station, the deputy uh, director of Alex Station was Tom Wilshire. He has, his superior was uh, Scheuer, but Scheuer was replaced by Richard Blee mm. in 2000, um, in 1999, excuse me. Um, yes, uh, unbelievably, Tennant actually not only says that to the 9-11 Commission, but also to the Joint House Inquiry, because he actually uh, is interviewed by the inquiry itself. The inquiry, the Joint Inquiry testimony of Tennant is a lot more revealing than the 9-11 Commission. Now, he says that to, to, to Tim Romer. Tim Romer is actually the 9-11 Commission member who states that um, you only visited the president once in the month of August. And Tennant responds that, quote, yeah, either he's on leave or I'm here and on, on leave itself. Um, he's in Texas because Bush was in Texas at the time and Tennant was on leave. And he doesn't explain why he's on leave. But he says that he doesn't see the president at all in the month of August. Um, but he sends a briefer a CIA briefer, a daily presidential briefer to the ranch on the 21st. Now, that's really convenient because now what does that tell you? Tenet actually has no link to whatever's briefed on, on to the president, but what's briefed to the president is the information that was gathered from Ahmed Bassem, the Millennium Plot Bomber, in what he states in the brief, most of the information from that from that interview, it states that Bin Laden is attacking the United States and using planes as weapons, but he doesn't state which which cities, what time, whatever the details. By details, but to go back to Alex Station, sorry, can I just pause you there a second? I I was in my mind, uh, George Tennant definitely visited the president himself, right, and was not honest about that. It wasn't a briefer that was sent. Am I right? Am I right or wrong he, about that? He, he, he actually states before the joint inquiry and to Tim Romer that when Tim Romer asks, goes, you don't see the president, there's a quote, you don't see the president once in the month of August and Tenet states either, quote, no, either he's on leave or no, either I'm on leave or he's down in Texas. And then 
Romer follows up, quote, then who sees the president on the 21st? Quote, Tenet says, the briefer. The briefer, the presidential daily briefer from the CIA. And you don't have so any Tenet, information that conflicts that? Does there, is there any information? I can't, no. That's, oh, okay. coming from, that's coming from Tenet's mouth himself. Um, interestingly enough, um, Romer's like in shock. And then he, the next thing he gets, he goes, like, he, he, first of all, you can see in the video, if you ever see the video, Romer's like, he cannot believe that Tenet doesn't see Bush in this month. Because this is the month that Alex Stations, Richard Blee, and Tenet go and run and have that emergency meeting with Condoleezza Rice and the State Department saying something big is going to happen inside the United States. Um, and then Rice dismisses it and says that your information is vague, in which it was. But the information is coming from information from Alex Station. However, that information is not shared with the FBI itself, and the FBI agents of Mark Rossini, Doug Miller. Tom Wilshire, the deputy director, actually states that we're not going to let um, Colleen Raleigh uh, and their information try to open up Masawi's laptop because it's not for them to open up. It's not there. Uh, the information that's gathered from Alex station is not for the FBI to know. Now he does this to the Doug Miller cable that we spoke about previously in which Doug Miller states that he wanted to share the information of Khalid Al-Midar and Nawafa Hazmi mm -hmm. having U.S. visas to FBI and that Tom Wilshire didn't want the information from the uh, from Alex states to be shared with Raleigh to help in the Pfizer warrant of Harry Salmon and to open up the laptop. And of course, 9-11 happens, it's all too late, doesn't matter. But of course the laptops, and they, they get the warrant anyway to open up the laptop and to search out at the home and all this incrimination, all incriminating evidence is there. Now, when the FBI gets this information and of course, everyone's deflated. Harry Samet is like, he's emotionally destroyed because he actually believes in his heart that he thinks that with the information that they gotten out of the apartment, they left up, they, they could have stopped 9-11. Yeah. Whether, now, let, let's just, hypothetical, whether he believes that or whether that could have been true, that's a big stretch. Um, because Samet couldn't have known anything about Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi and Ani Anjur out west. Um, he didn't have, he wasn't privy to that information because that information wasn't shared with the FBI to begin with. Um, and that's, of course, blame from the CIA's Alex Station. So that part of the plan could have went through even if they stopped the Hamburg cell in the East with the information that they got. Now, the relevant, the finer details were brought out in the Musawi trial. And Musawi actually went against the advice of his lawyer and states that, yes, he's guilty. And he pleads guilty to a number of crimes, uh, Title 18, which is a criminal uh, act against the United States using um, aircraft to smash into American targets. Um, he pled guilty to um, conspiracy to, to, in, to embark on terrorism inside the United States. It was like five other counts as well. And then they have a, a penalty phase called penalty phase that comes out. So Harry Samet has to take the stand. And Harry Samet knows that um, the information that he has is relevant to prosecute Misawi, 
even though that the defense attorneys for Musawi claimed that a lot of it is speculation that he could be held to uh, perjury, which could destroy Harry Savage, on the other hand, if, if his information is not valid. But it came out that Savage's information about Musawi, his previous inclinations, will not just not just prosecute Musawi, but was well enough to get that FISA warrant. So in other words, the, the, the superiors that shut down Summit saying that all the information that he had prior to August 2001 was just speculation, it was more than enough to warrant a FISA warrant, which could have led to the information that they got after 9-11. So in other words, that they could have probably prevented part of 9-11. Yeah. with the information if they had that FISA warrant, right? So it makes you wonder um, sure. why um, Dave Frasca, why Tom Wilshire, why Robert Mueller and Mike Maltby were so adamant and not uh, in denying um, the FISA warrant claimed by Harry Sammet. Yeah. And, and you uh, just left with two narratives, right? I mean, Colleen Rowley is never critical as she, as she has been of the actions of the FBI people we've, right. we've mentioned has never said it was a conspiracy or anyone wanted it to happen. You know, much like Mark Rossini says about what went on at Alex Station, uh, the FBI officer seconded there, right? FBI agents right. seconded there. Um, you know, so and on the other hand, on the other hand, you have people like Mike Rupert uh, writing his Crossing the Rubicon book, uh, where he does make that case, and it's like a paradigm shift almost. Like there's two ways of seeing this of interpreting this data, I suppose. Yeah, to go back to your point about Rowley, now, Rowley wrote two memos, one to uh, FBI superiors and one personally to Robert Mueller, the FBI director. Rowley was quite careful in her memo to, to, to Mueller, but she did state that, yes, the FBI didn't maliciously intend to not share the information or uh, to deny the FISA warrant, but she said that there was a huge disconnect between the agents on the field and superiors itself. Yeah. And that she says that, um, that just alone from the French intelligence that was shared with, with Samet should have been enough for the FISA warrant to be approved. But she also said that agents that were desperate to get into Masawi's um, uh, laptop wanted a criminal warrant based on the intelligence from French, uh, from the intelligence that the French divided. And she stated that FBI superiors did not take the threats of previous instances of, of the memos that were coming from Phoenix of terrorism seriously. But she did say, and to get to your point, she did make it clear that she said to Mueller that she did not think that superiors in Minnesota, in Oklahoma City, did it maliciously. And that was to not label her as a conspiracy theorist. Sure, sure, sure. She actually said it was a joke reason. that was made in the office about, like, the higher-ups working for Bin Laden or something. It right. was a joke that was made. That's exactly. Didn't yeah. I thought it was um, a smart move by her point, by the way, to, to make sure that. Yeah. Because yeah. she has no I mean, evidence to suggest so. Sure, sure, right. sure. So, um, just, okay, I'm... That's my question list concluded. So there's anything like you'd like to say, I'll, I'll hand it over to you in a second to do that. I just want to, I've been lucky, okay, in the two reasons. I had a copy of the Watchdogs Don't Bark, uh, John Duffy and Ray 
Noazeski's book next to me. And I, I happen to have opened it on the right page for the Tennant thing, where it's talking about um, Tim Romer questioning Tennant uh, in the commission. And um, he asked him um, about seeing the president in between August 6th and uh, September 11th. And Tennant said um, he didn't. Uh, I didn't see the president. I was not in the briefing system during this time. He was on vacation. I was here. Um, so Roma repeated the question. And like um, exactly as you describe it, Roma sat for a moment just staring at Tennant, seemingly unsure of what to make of his testimony. Because, um, yeah, he, they went back and forth with Tennant repeatedly denying that he saw him. And then after the session closed, I'm reading from the book here, with the final public interviews of the CIA director now in the rear view, Tennant's staff messaged the commission that he had misspoken. Tennant had in fact spoken of Bush at, the, at least twice on August 17th and 31st. Spoken um, with him by phone? It doesn't say, that I don't know if the memo said, right? Um, I, I'm actually thinking it was, um, uh, again, his name just left my head. The the CIA uh, guy Ray, um, help me out here, Adam. Ray. It was the guy that did the daily McGovern. Brief. Ray McGovern. Ray McGovern. Ray McGovern. Ray yeah. McGovern. It was in an interview. I'm pretty sure I've heard this in an interview when uh, John Gold interviewed Ray McGovern. They right. talked a lot about tenants' connections with that. So before we put this out, I'll re-listen to that and see if I can get clarity. But okay. The memo said he spoke to him twice, and um, when Thomas Keane was asked about it. Um, he said, I don't think Tennant misspoke. I think he misled. Hi, everyone. Just an insert. I checked this out after we recorded, and George Tennant did fly to see the president on his vacation on August 17th. And that's what makes it so incredulous that he forgot that. It's just not believable. And then obviously raises the suspicion that if he lied about that, he probably lied about what was said there too, or at least with no reason to believe him. And this is something Ray McGovern does address in his interview with John Gold, which I will link to in the info box. Okay, back to it. Which is interesting, but I, th I think it goes back to your point. I think that was regarding Masawi's laptop, actually, because there was too much, too much coincidental... Uh, there's too much coincidences here because, remember, he gives the presidential daily brief to the brief on the, on the 21st. That's the same day... Was how he's arrested. Right. So that's what I think that was the reason. But what, why? So because Tennant doesn't explain why, right? He doesn't explain why. And he doesn't explain what was stated in those calls, right? So that leads up to the imagination as to what they could have been talking about on the 31st. And what was the other date? The 6th? The 3rd? Or the 8th? 17th so, and 31st. 17th and 31st. The 17th is a little too early. I would like to know what they were talking about at that time, if that's if that's the case. But then again, why would why would why would Tenet not tell the commission that he spoke with Bush twice? Interestingly enough, it's I find to me pretty incriminating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah. because I, I you know what now that I'm thinking about it. He would have to explain what they were talking about, and maybe that's what he didn't want. Uh, maybe that's what he wanted hidden from the 9/11 Commission. But why? That's the question. Yeah, yeah there's there's more um, in there about Tennant not mentioning it actually in the book and and in um, 
yeah, in uh, John Gold's interview too, I think. So I might actually just lift it up before we pop this out and sure. put an insert maybe if I if it I find something in there that clarifies that because they do they do talk a lot about why. Right. Um, <coughs> so yeah, uh, I won't include what I'm saying now. I'll cut this bit. Um, so I'll come back in with a, a question. Okay, Adam. Uh, anything else you'd like to say on this before we conclude? Sure. Uh, the book by Mr. Gray, I heard you were going on Jihad. I thought it was an excellent book. Um, it did go into detail about uh, Musawi, uh, why he entered the United States and the crimes that he himself admitted to um, itself. Uh, incidentally, Mr. Gray uh, really is off the radar, it seems, much like in the way of Kevin Fenton yeah. and Paul Thompson. Um, these guys wrote excellent books and you never hear from them again. And, you know, leads me to question as to why we, we have not heard from them again. Okay. Well, speaking of Kevin Fenton, I will link to his article. Uh, it's very concise, uh, references right. history commons and really goes through this uh, incredibly well. That's an article on uh, newsboard.com. So I'll link to that in the, the comments box below. Um, too. Okay. Thank you very much, Adam. And, Thank uh, you, Richard. We'll see you next time. Hi everyone. After we finished, we realized we'd neglected to mention the 2014 story of Zacharias Moussaoui accusing two senior Saudi royals of funding the 9-11 attacks. Prince Turki al-Faisal and Prince Bandar bin Sultan through his wife, Princess Haifa al-Faisal. Adam addresses these claims here in the context of the wider evidence for Saudi government support. Moussaoui actually, actually fingered Faisal first, because Faisal was then the Saudi intelligence chief at the time. And that would make a little bit of sense because it was Faisal who uh, met with bin Laden before he goes to Sudan and offers uh, a reprieve of sorts. Because at the time, bin Laden was actually held in a house arrest and his passport was taken away. And it was bin Faisal, according to um, Seymour Hirsch in an article he wrote, a while back, it was been it was Turkey Prince Turkey Al Faisal, who meets with Bin Laden at in his home, and he tells him, "Well, we have a we have um, an idea." He goes, "We'll let you have your businesses back, your assets back to your father's uh, construction program, which is the Saudi Bin Laden group. Have you all your assets and relinquish your passport, but you can't live in, in Saudi Arabia." And so the idea came from. Hassan al-Turabi, who's head of the National Islamic Front in Sudan, who offers uh, bin Laden temporary residence, and he takes him up on the offer. He actually sends a couple of emissaries from al-Qaeda there. Um, one of them was uh, al-Banshari, and he says that, yes, this is, this is a theocratic uh, type of government. Um, and so bin Laden goes and takes everybody with him, slowly but surely. Um, Musawi, during the course of the trial, uh, hints that there were um, Saudi intelligence operatives funding the 9-11 operation. And afterwards, um, he then makes the bold declaration in a letter to uh, the, the presiding judge who sentenced him. And he writes this letter and he states uh, that Prince Turkey al-Faisal, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, who was the Saudi ambassador to the United States, and Prince Al-Tawid bin Talal, um, who gave funding to Saudi nationals through the Riggs Bank, through Riggs Bank, 
and that the funding was then extracted by the wives of uh, the two Saudi nationals inside the United States of Omar al-Bayoubi and Osama Basnan. And the wives of the, the Saudis themselves of uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan um, then sent periodical checks, monthly checks of anywhere between five to $10,000 for the next 24 months between the years 1999 to 2002. So this funding is going directly to third-hand accounts to the hands of two people out West. That's Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. The connection is made through wire transfers and it becomes a almost like it's now solidified with the testimony of Moussaoui. Moussaoui's already in jail. He's doing life in prison. He's in Adamac State, Colorado prison. So there's no, I guess, uh, there's no reprieve for him. And why would he make this up? I, I, I believe it's true. It's, it's true anyway, but this really brings home the fact that the Saudi government, most of those who are still in function today, Bin Sultan is still around, and so is Talal and Faisal. In fact, Talal is still a, a probably he's a billion and billionaire investor uh, for most of the Southwest of the United States. He's friends with um, Hillary Clinton. Uh, he's also friends with uh, certain elements within the Trump government because he's a uh, a big time prominent um, Saudi investor who has a lot of interest here in the United States and vice versa. Um, so they're willing to protect these people at all costs. And incidentally enough, when Massawi came out with this revelation, Ramzi Youssef, who was a suspect in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, also doing life at Adamac State, uh, Colorado prison, actually sent a death threat to Massawi. So why would he do that in, in that term? I, I don't understand why, but, um, maybe it's because Youssef himself also may have had contacts with the Saudi government in terms of funding for 1993. That is also speculation, by the way. But it, but it, it is hard. It's hard to think of that, right? Like why Youssef would be right. so loyal to the Saudi state after spending 15 years in that point in jail, even if he did have funding from them. Um, it's not, I mean, one of the things that's strange about the 93 bombing was the um, the absence of money they had. They didn't have enough money to get. Um, Poor old, what's his name, a plane ticket out of the country. Mohammed um, Salome. Salome, that's the one, you know. So, right. <laughs> um, it, that, it, it's a whole strange thing, and there's no obvious reason why Youssef would want to protect the Saudi state. That right. Way. And I think that funding came from Mohammed uh, uh, bin Laden's brother in law, Mohammed uh, bin Khalifa, who, uh, Mohammed Jamal Khalifa, who actually was getting funding from the Saudi government. Uh, to prop up businesses in the Philippines. And that would make sense because that's where Ramsey Yusuf trained right, right. Um, in the Philippines with Abu Sayyaf and uh, learning how to create urea nitrate bombs and, of course, small hand grenades and makeshift bombs as well. And there was a big bombing campaign in the Philippines in the, uh, the mid-1990s, actually. Uh, incidentally enough, there was also an FBI informant and also an informant for the Philippine National Police, uh, Edward Angeles, who actually okay. Out. Yeah. 
I'm going to, I'll stop you there, Adam, because I'd love to talk to you about Edward Angeles, but I think we should um, do an Edward Angeles episode then and not. not. So, so we just wanted to, because we didn't mention this in the first sort of run through, we but it's an important thing to mention. We, we've talked about um, Omar Bayoumi and the connection to the, the hijackers in uh, previous episodes and whole Saudi funding of, and they don't talk about it again, but it's just worth right. thinking in there, you know, so thanks. I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm glad you uh, cut me off because I would have just kept going. Yeah, no, I look forward to that and the whole situation of the Philippines and um, the connection sure. maybe to the Oklahoma City bombing and all the rest. A lot, lot to say about it, but sure. not for now. Okay, thanks, Adam. Thank you.